Have you ever followed a diet together with a community of friends? Maybe you all agreed to cut out sugar for a week, or you're trying a dry January altogether. Perhaps you have found community through your diet. You went paleo for a while and enjoyed building connections with other paleo people on Instagram. Or you're a vegan and despite all the jokes lobbed at vegans, you're grateful to be a part of something beyond yourself. What is it about our diet that connects us with others? Why do we find it easier to eat in a certain manner when we do it with friends? And why does our diet become such a significant part of our identity? Most importantly, is this helpful or harmful for us? These are the questions we're going to explore today. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from the Edible Theology Project, where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can focus on the people your food will serve. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale. You belong to Christ. Now as you exhale, and Christ belongs to God. When I was fresh out of college, I attended a church that had a regular habit of eating together after every service. We met on Sunday afternoons for worship, then moved to the fellowship hall for a meal each week, a chance to extend the communion we just shared at the Lord's table onto our dinner tables as well. These after-church meals meant a lot to me. In fact, they were a huge reason I chose this church. New to the city and working in tense restaurant hours, these Sunday dinners were the only time I had each week to spend with friends. A few months into my time at that church, some women began chatting about doing a Whole30 together. They invited others to participate, and pretty soon the group had grown to include many women in the church. Each week, there were a handful of dishes on the Sunday buffet labeled Whole30 Friendly. The first time I saw it, my stomach churned. I was viscerally upset by this communal diet taking place in my church, but I couldn't exactly pinpoint why. If you've listened to this podcast for long, or you've read much of my writing, 
You probably know that I spent most of my teenage and college years wrestling against a disordered relationship to food and dieting. Healing was a long, slow road of reorienting my relationship to both food and my body. I had to let go of the quest for control. I had to learn to see food as a delicious gift from God, rather than a collection of quantifiable nutrients I could use to make my body behave in a certain way. For me, so much of this healing came through my relationship to church, through the bread that I consumed in communion week after week. When my friends began their communal Whole30, I was wary of the concept. I'd spent enough of my life restricting what I ate that I didn't trust it could ever turn out well. To watch a method of food restriction serve as a source of community in my church was heartbreaking to me. At the time, I thought my reaction was one of frustration. Frustration that others would restrict themselves in a way I believed to be mentally and physically harmful. In truth, though, I think my pain was even more complicated than that. It's possible this communal Whole30 was great for some of my friends. Maybe the intentionality it brought to eating was healing for those who never really thought about the food they ate. Maybe the rhythm introduced new ingredients or cooking techniques to those who participated. And maybe the practice offered community to some who struggled to find it in other places. What hurt so badly for me was that this was a community in which I couldn't take part. Within the church that had become so meaningful to me, built each week around the table, was a smaller community from which I was unintentionally excluded, simply because I could not eat and didn't really want to eat the way they were eating at the time. The foods we eat and the foods we avoid say something about who we are. It might say something about our religious background, like for those who eat kosher or halal. It might say something about our geographic location, like whether we consider brisket or pork to be true barbecue. And it might say something about our family heritage. Because our food says so much about us, our diets have the ability to create a sense of belonging among others who eat the same way. And our diets have the ability to create a sense of exclusion, too. In fact, belonging and exclusion oftentimes go hand in hand. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. The Jewish practice of kosher eating creates belonging among those who participate, and it marks the Jewish people as set apart. A Texan's love for brisket creates a bond among Texans now living all over the country. In my current state of North Carolina, where pork reigns supreme, my preference for brisket creates a sense of belonging among my fellow Texans, even as it excludes us from the traditions of this state. Excluding certain foods from our diet and emphasizing others can serve to connect us to a community of other people who eat in a similar way. This, in turn, creates the kind of belonging that we so desperately crave. 
Here in the United States, the average consumer does not experience a strong sense of belonging through particular foods. As we reflected in the episode on authentic food last fall, many Americans feel very little connection to any particular cuisine. Our entire lives, we've had a world of flavors open to us. Eating tacos, pasta, rice, and beans all in the same week. Eating fusions of foods from multiple regions and mixing spices grown all around the world. In the absence of family, religious, or cultural identity formed through food, we are compelled by the belonging offered by trendy diets like the Whole30, Paleo, Vegan, or Keto. These diets offer us a sense of identity. They offer community online. They offer both a form of belonging and a method of being set apart. This desire for belonging isn't bad. This desire for community is core to our humanity, and the ability for food to create a sense of belonging is a core feature of this delicious gift from God. It makes so much sense that we would be compelled to find community and identity through diets in this way. But the diets that offer community and belonging here in America today are a band-aid solution for a deeper problem. And it's a band-aid that can cause its own kind of further pain. I'd nearly forgotten about that church-wide Whole30 until a few weeks ago. A friend of mine mentioned offhand something she'd experienced while doing one. Immediately, I felt that visceral reaction boiling up within me again. As we probed my gut response to the diet, I was finally able to articulate my deeper concern. In addition to providing a sense of belonging, the dietary identities formed through religious or cultural traditions are born out of a history of paying attention to the relationship between food and our bodies and our geography. It's born out of careful attention to the broader ramifications of what we eat. It draws people deeper into community with one another, in connection with the place they live and in delight in the delicious gift of food. But the diets on offer to us today treat food in a fundamentally different way. They teach us to approach food as a source of fuel, separating it into quantifiable calculations which we can then control. As a result, we learn to follow a series of rules rather than paying careful attention to our food, our bodies, or the places we live. This approach can cause profound damage to us, both mentally and physically, especially as the recommended rules continue to change. The belonging on offer is a valuable byproduct of these current trends, but is it worth the cost? Is it worth losing the ability to pay attention to our body's desires and needs? Is it worth losing touch with the communities the diet excludes us from? Is it worth forgetting the food traditions that have shaped our ancestors? I'm convinced the table can better meet our deep need for belonging when we let go of the fight for calculated control and go straight for community and connection instead. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. We'll get to our kitchen tip in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break to tell you more about edible theology. 
The Edible Theology Project is an educational nonprofit helping you connect the communion table to the kitchen table. Our podcast and curriculum are designed to help you heal relationships both to food and community. I'm really excited to share that in just a few weeks, I'll be releasing a new book that strikes right at the heart of our mission here. It's called Buy Bread Alone, a baker's reflections on hunger, longing, and the goodness of God. The book is a theological reflection on bread, as told through my own story. It's about the relationships between our daily bread and the bread of life and the body of Christ and our individual bodies. If you have a complicated relationship with bread or your body or with God or with the church, if you are aching for a tangible way of knowing God is near, then I wrote this book for you. Pre-order your copy today and it will be on your doorstep just in time to read it with me this Lent. Our kitchen tip this week is for those who want to shift their relationship to food from one of viewing food as fuel or a collection of nutrients to one of food as a source of community and connection, a method of listening to our bodies and to the people around us. When you've spent most of your life relating to food in quantifiable terms, calories, grams of sugar or fat, one of five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, it can be really, really difficult to change your perception of the things you eat. I've had many people tell me, if I thought about food the way you do, I'd just gain so much weight. I always smile and sigh when I hear this response. This fear comes as a direct result of treating food as fuel, as something to battle against, something to burn. When you're driven by this mentality, foods with less nutritional value or higher caloric value serve as a temptation rather than a source of delight alongside an array of other options. The desire for them becomes so outsized that many fear they would overindulge if they let go of strict control. But treating food as a source of community and connection involves listening to your body and its needs. When we begin to pay attention and trust that our body is telling us something important through our cravings or desires, oftentimes we will find that we actually want to eat a diet balanced in nutrients. If you have a history of eating disorders or you are worried about your health, then it might be important to do this under the guidance of a nutritionist. I would recommend looking for one who specializes in intuitive eating. We all crave connection with other human beings, so consider how you can still use food to connect and create a sense of belonging through something other than a shared diet. Perhaps a series of meals where you share stories of the foods that are meaningful to you, or teaching your friends your favorite foods from childhood. If you need a tool to help you in this process, you might enjoy Edible Theology's new Worship at the Table program, It's a six-lesson curriculum designed to help you gather with friends and talk about food, finding healing in relationship to food, your body, and community with every bite. And now to close, a prayer for belonging. God of belonging, you created us with the need to find connection with others, to know spaces where we can simply be You created food and the table to function in a powerful way. 
promoting both belonging and exclusion to meet this need. Help us find connection in the table that you set, your body broken so we can love the bodies you gave us. Loose the bonds of our desire for control that we may listen to our hungers and delight in the foods you made. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or group of friends. Need some help getting into that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com, and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to my Edible Theology team who made this podcast possible, especially to our producer, Jason Rugg. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify, then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.